Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, good, um, and, and, and quite excited, uh, listeners, uh, to uh, 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 record our follow-up episode uh, about uh, one of the seemingly less important <laughs> positions in the U.S. federal government, the office of vice president. <laughs> hey, I'm going to suggest that it is not seeming when they wait to give you a house until 1978. <laughs> Uh, which is where we left where we left off was that they finally got a house for the for the vice president actually they didn't go build a house they had a house laying around on the naval grounds and they were like hey why don't we stick the vice president's residence over here that'll be nice because that'll be easy for us to protect since we've already got a military perimeter on it like talk about lazy oh, we don't even go find you your own residence we just stick you where there's already a house and some guards and stuff, but whatever, I know I sound Well, it, 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 in, in the previous episode uh, about the office of vice president, okay? I mean, we talked about how many of the position holders thought so very little about the position. Yes, right? I, believe, I believe the quote was a warm, bowl, warm bucket of spit. Uh, uh, it was yeah. not worth a warm bucket of spit. I um, mean, but I had, mean, really, uh, we don't even give you a house. What was his name? Um, um, uh, vice President Marshall, uh, who uh, was Woodrow Wilson's uh, vice president. I mean, he went ahead and made, <laughs> made the, the, uh, the statement that he was not interested in working anymore but he would be willing to do the vice president's <laughs> job again. <laughs> like, 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 wait, wait a minute. We're going to get to some interesting quotes, but I want to, I want to ask you first about like, there've been some weird vice presidential happenings, right? Like um, yes. vice okay. presidents who, who quit vice presidents who like, can you tell us about some of those? Because I'm I'm always intrigued by the sort of more personal. Yeah, um, we Wasn't, had, didn't we have a vice president sworn in, not in the United States? Uh yeah, uh, which seems King. weird. Yeah, we, <laughs> yes, like, right. that'd be really cool though. If like it's like Slumdog Millionaire, we just picked a person, and yeah, put yeah. them on. You know, put them on. Put, hey, you want to be vice president? Well, I mean, hey, it, 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 the interest in the position would probably go up if we did a reality <laughs> show. To <Ow>. pick, <gasps> Big Brother Vice President version, you know, or uh, Jersey Shore Vice President version, or, or you know, dancing with the future Vice <gasps> President. That would be fantastic. Oh, I'm in. I'm or, so in. Or we picked vice presidents on a kind of sort of a. America's Got Talent, you know. 
they have to sing they have to juggle they have to yeah but you, you know, know what and considering the the amount of stuff they they do which has to do with showing up and being ceremonial what we really should do is run it like the miss universe pageant we yeah, should have how, a swimsuit competition we should have a how well a talent look, competition how well do you look at a funeral exactly how or, somber can you look yeah how, you, know, you know what kind of somber remarks can you make so instead of the question being you know like what would you like to solve in the world and world hunger right like that's the answer what we should say is what would your remarks be if a third world dictator died <laughs> and you had to speak at their funeral and and not reveal cia involvement in their death <laughs> and the person would be like well the first thing i would say is right like you know what i mean like i think that would be could you keep a straight cool. could you keep a straight face when you're staring at the casket of a former third world dictator that you're pretty much sure we killed the, we <laughs> the united states killed right oh my goodness right okay, like we, or we, we, I'm just okay, saying, can, and instead of a instead of a swimsuit competition, there would be a suit competition. Yeah. Like, what kind of you know how well cut are your suits? Are they tailored nicely? You know that kind of thing. Or if you're a female, you could do that with dresses. You know, appropriate. Or oh, you could have a whole quiz about what's the appropriate color to wear to the appropriate event. Like oh. you're opening a store in a city that's that's coming back with manufacturing. You're opening a manufacturing plant, not a store. Manufacturing plant. What color should you wear? You're, you know, that kind of thing. That would be really you know, cool. You know, actually, uh, that would be really useful. Well, I mean, you know, how do you respond when the president sends you to a country? that nobody in the cabinet has ever heard of or an international <laughs> or can find event. on a map. <laughs> okay. For an international event that nobody in the United States cares about. Right. But the, but the United States needs to have an official representative. Right. You're you opening the FIFA cup between France and Brazil, the United States. Most people don't even know what the FIFA cup is. Oh no! But, well, then, yeah. you, but 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 needed to make it even worse, or the okay? cricket cup. Okay, two countries who are participating in this global sporting event that nobody's ever heard of, right? <laughs> right. You know, between Luxembourg okay, and and Palau. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Which most people could not find on a map. <laughs> okay. Um. Uh. How do you respond? I mean, these are the kinds of hypothetical questions. That, that kind of sort of get great. asked, okay, in either like Miss Universe competitions or job interviews where they've already identified the candidate they want to hire, but they're looking for reasons, okay, to reject the other interviewees. Right. So here's a hypothetical. We hire you and <laughs> you have to do X. Huh? Right? <laughs> I think... The other thing too is instead of a talent competition, you would have like how do you who cuts ribbons the best, who who stands at attention the longest. Like you could have one of those things where people, you know, instead of touching a car until they pass out, they would just have to stand like at a really long funeral or a really long parade, that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, you could have a contest. There, on. And every state sends someone 
Yeah. So that yeah. it would be a, that every state would have the potential of having a vice president? President, yeah. But Nia, back to your question, we actually <laughs> had a president. Okay, oh, right. There's who, a serious topic here. That's right. <laughs> okay. Who uh, uh, took the oath of office um, uh, uh, while he was in uh, Cuba. Uh, that was uh, William King. Um, he was the quote unquote unlucky, unlucky vice president number 13. Um, he missed uh, his inauguration in March of 1853 because he was recovering uh, from um, um, uh, tuberculosis, uh, TB. I always mispronounce the word, okay? Tuberculosis. Um, yes. Um, and uh, 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 he... Oh, right. And that's back when people went to Florida or Cuba or yes. other places to try to get that's before we knew Arizona existed. Yes. And uh, <laughs> when he finally returned to the United States one month later, um, uh, he died. Um, uh, and, and he was only in office uh, for basically a month. It's the shortest tenure of any vice president. One month. Okay. Oh, um, right. Inauguration. You said inauguration March 4th. That's right. Inauguration used to be in March, and then it got moved back to January, where it That's is right. now. Yeah. Okay, so if he died in April, yeah, wow. He, he was only vice president for one month. We've had two quit, okay? Uh, <laughs> That's John it. Kel I'm done. This job is too hard, and I'm not doing it anymore. Or well, this job is so boring, I almost died from boredom. Well, Actually, neither of those two explanations. <laughs> okay. John, John Calhoun um, was the, uh, the seventh vice president uh, in our country's history. He was the VP to John Quincy Adams in the mid-1800s, okay? Um, but Calhoun quit um, because he wanted to fill a vacant Senate seat in his home state of South Carolina, which tells you how little he thought of the vice president <laughs> job, right? Well, okay, but in fairness to him, aren't there term limits on vice presidents? Or are there? Uh, back then there wasn't. Uh, because okay. um, uh, we didn't get the... Um, uh, the amendment to the U.S. Constitution to limit presidential and vice presidential terms to two until after FDR. Okay, in the, in so the 20th century. So he could have conceivably been vice president a lot. Well, yeah. Okay. Except that because what I was thinking was, well, yeah, if if you because now if you have the choice between being vice president for a maximum of eight years or senator for a maximum of 974,000 years, Strom Thurmond, I'm looking at you, then yeah. why would you not do Senate if, you, if what you want is to, is to be a long-term public servant? For what I read for Calhoun, Calhoun's view of the vice presidency job was very similar to what you and I discussed in previous podcast episodes about how little lawyers thought of being a Supreme Court justice early in our country's history. Okay. Because, you know, 
we had people nominated to the Supreme Court who turned down the nomination. We, we had a Chief Justice, John Jay, who resigned from leading the court so he could run for governor of the state of New York. Right. Okay. So, so vice president was basically just seen as a guy waiting for the president to slip on a banana peel and die. Pretty much. Now, Which this, nobody second, would want that job because one, yeah, you're mean, a little bit like a vulture, right? You're waiting around for somebody to die. But two, the, because the founders didn't give you anything to do other ooh. than be a tie-breaking vote, that's a lot of boredom. Uh, like well, it, I can see where that would be annoying. And then the president makes you go do stupid stuff that you don't want to do. And, and when you think about it, and we discussed this in the previous podcast episode, Nia, many of these VP candidates were picked by presidential candidates after the VP candidate lost in the primaries right. to a particular person. Imagine what you have to swallow. Yeah. To go no. to to accept being on the ticket for the second slot after you just spent two and a half, three years trying to be the person in the in first the top, spot. Yeah, in the yeah. top spot, right? Yeah. And okay. and you just spent a whole lot of time telling everybody in the world why this guy would be a terrible person to have as president (laughs) and now you're saying but no i'll go work for you right which is now the second vp by the way who quit um, wait but calhoun he was vice president for more than one president wasn't he uh uh yes um uh, sir yeah adams and um uh did uh um andrew jackson which is really shocking because (laughs) those are presidents of two different political parties and jackson and john quincy adams despised one another despised them you know despised each other right so that's interesting calhoun could play both sides of that or calhoun came to despise adams and calhoun at least initially in his political his national political career was was known as one of the leading states people statesmen in the united states him henry clay and daniel webster it was only later after calhoun became a senator from a state of south carolina that he became known as an ardent advocate for states' rights, okay? Okay. So maybe in some ways it wasn't all that surprising that Calhoun was able to to be elected as vice president for two different presidents from two different political parties. That's a pretty pretty interesting talent. Okay, so sorry, the... Okay, so we got, we, we, we got, we're kind of sort of identifying, if you will, unusual um, uh, phenomenon in the position of vice president. Right. So Calhoun resigned 
The only other vice president to resign was Spiro Agnew, who uh. was Richard Nixon's vice president. Agnew had to resign because uh, he was charged with tax evasion and taking bribes <laughs> in his previous government position, uh, which was governor of the fine state of Maryland. Ah, Oh, he okay. did that when he was governor. Okay, not when he was Yeah, vice he did president. it when he was governor. Although, he probably did it when he was vice president, too. Let's be honest. If you get away with it, well, anyway. We, we, Look at me we being cynical. I, we, Never mind. We could hypothesize, right? We could also hypothesize that he probably was all swirled up in the Watergate thing, too, because almost inter- everybody. Well, interestingly enough, Nixon didn't know him personally when he was picked to be Nixon's VP candidate. The Republican Party establishment thought Nixon needed a mid-Atlantic East Coast VP because Nixon was known more as a a West Coast, okay, Barry Goldwater-esque Republican. Because Nixon was from California, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, okay. So, um, no, there was only one so other. So, Agnew resigns. And, and that then... leads to, because of the 25th Amendment, um, uh, Nixon picks Gerald Ford, who right. was a member in the House of Representatives from Michigan. And according to the 25th Amendment, both houses of Congress had to approve his choice. And they did so. The vote wasn't even close. Oh, really? Ford, okay. Ford becomes vice president, and then, you know, all hell breaks loose about Watergate, <laughs> right? Right. So when Nixon resigns as president, Gerald, Gerald Ford becomes president. So Gerald Ford is our only VP presidential occupant who never won a general election for either position. Which in part is what hurt him when he ran for re-election. Yeah, he had no because political he, cap. Yeah, he had no political capital, right? And he also didn't know how to do it. Like that was a Yeah. It's I mean, a heck it's of one, a thing going from Michigan from a representative from Michigan. You're only doing part of the state to a national campaign that's a big dip that's a big thing but there's another vice president who served under two presidents like there's a fork there's a fork in the road for mr calhoun because he's one of two exclusive clubs yes uh george clinton george clinton served as vp for both thomas jefferson and james madison and by the way you want to talk about a vice president who had very little to do Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, okay, um, didn't become president with very many doubts about what they wanted to do as president, right? Right. I mean, you're talking about two of the leading figures of the American Revolution, okay, two founding fathers, if you will. Yeah, they didn't really rely all that much on Vice President Clinton, Um, just out of curiosity, did the yeah. vice president's office pay back in the day? Has it uh, always they, been a paid or have there always been? Yeah, it was a paid position. Okay. Um, 
Um, so that's not one of the reasons why. <laughs> I, I, I think I know where you were going with that, Nia. That's not one of the re reasons why we got, how can I put it? A bunch of mediocre people as VP for, okay. uh, you know, most of the 19th century. Well, yeah. um, uh, now we already talked about how vice presidents have been uh, dumped by their presidents. Did we talk about that? Uh, well, we mentioned how FDR went through, you know, three different vice presidents, right? Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, in a very controversial uh, decision, uh, got rid of his first term vice president, Hannibal Hamlin. <laughs> <gasps> what a great I love, name. I love that name. Okay. You imagine uh, uh, the monogram on his cufflinks and on his shirts. <laughs> H -H. Double double H, right? Okay. <laughs> he probably uh, sounds but, cooler than he was. Yeah. So Hamlin wasn't actually picked by Lincoln. The Republican Party. Remember, we talked about this oh, in the right. podcast episode. Vice President selection throughout most of the 19th century, well into the 20th century. We even saw this with FDR. The party establishment would pick the VP as a kind of sort of patronage payoff or trying to go ahead and shore up what the party establishment thought might be a weak link in the candidates. Right. If you're you from the North, you're rich. We need somebody from the South who maybe came up through more working class. Yeah. Right. That kind you know, of thing to sort of balance yeah, the ticket. Yeah. You got the Kennedy J uh, Johnson ticket for that reason, right? Young yes. and brash and Northern, and then older, more established Southern Texas. So, and the thing yeah. with about, you know, with Lincoln was by all accounts, he had been largely a failed politician before he got the Republican Party nomination. Mm -hmm in 1860. Hamlin, however, okay, was, you know, considered, you know, you know a solid, okay, uh, electable official who could balance the ticket. Lincoln wins. And then Lincoln decides when he runs for re-election, he's going to pick uh, a Southerner Andrew Johnson to balance the ticket because Lincoln foreshadowed, if you will, um, you know, uh, the, the nation coming out of the Civil War. Um, and uh, Nia, um, uh, you've gone mute. Oops, I'm sorry. That's um, all right. That, that all happens right. to us in the, in the world well, of Zoom recordings, Zoom but I was recording. saying that that's very much a reflection of the Civil War, right? It's how yes. can we yeah. how can we bring the South into a or return the South to the Union? And, and Johnson before. I wonder uh, if I wonder if Hamlin was okay with that. I wonder if Hamlin. See, I wonder sometimes what people are promised when the party comes to them and says, "Yeah, we're not going to use you the next time because we need to do something different." 
um, the way the way you're fired now when they're like, we need to go in a different direction. We hope that you're, you know, we, we'd be happy to help you do whatever you need to do to move on kind of thing. I wonder, or if, or if, if the vice presidency is such a sucky job that the person goes, oh, thanks, appreciate that. I'm going back to Maine. From what I've been able, was able to gather, Nia, in my research, most vice presidents who were removed for subsequent presidential terms didn't really mind all that much <laughs> because they were largely shut out of the work within the White House, mm. right? Um, and, I mean, we already talked about FDR, right? I mean... Uh, I mean, FDR um, thought so little of the vice president position, uh, as we discussed in the previous podcast episode, FDR dies, Truman becomes president, and only then does Truman find out that we have the atomic bomb. Right, which is a thing you would think that somebody would tell a vice president, like, (laughs) oh, hey, by the way. Here's this, here's this world-altering thing we've been working on. Yeah. Because we're afraid the Nazis are building one. That's really why we built one. We built one because we were afraid the Nazis were building one. Turns out the Nazis didn't have the technology and were not building one. No, but then as the war continued on and Japan was seemingly unwilling to surrender then the bomb had a different purpose, right? right? And, you know, imagine, you know, you become president in the conditions that Truman became. Um, and, and now he's got to probably deal with one of the most uh, difficult ethical decisions of the 20th century. Do I use this bomb to end a war knowing full well that the tests of the atomic bomb seemingly suggested that hundreds of civilians would die. Right. Hundreds of thousands of civilians would die. And that it would make, well, he couldn't have known what a difference it would make to the political structure of the world. Yeah. When someone had the ability to destroy entire cities with one bomb. And by destroy, we mean completely, utterly destroy, remove from human life. Um, So I uh, I have, last time we talked, we we had mentioned that we were going to try to put intelligence briefings. Uh, We were going to try to link to some. Yeah, no, you can't do that. Because apparently they're not made public. So I couldn't find any. I could find sample ones where they tell you the kinds of things they tell the president, but I couldn't actually find one, even an old one. So I'm assuming that that's all eyes only until, I don't know, 200 years from now or whatever. Like they're, what, they're not. What, listeners, what uh, Nia is referencing is um, in the previous podcast episode, um, we talked about how if presidents exclude vice presidents, then um, if the vice president ends up becoming president, 
they're perhaps unprepared to do the job. Right. And that it wasn't until well into the late 20th century that vice presidents received their own daily intelligence briefing. And that wouldn't it be nice if we could go ahead and post on our resource guide. Yeah, I'm sure example. I'm on a list somewhere because I was searching that. <laughs> so I want the podcast to know I took one for the team. Um, you can find, but there, uh, it's just, I'm assuming there are some out there probably that are rogue. I don't want to put anything like that on a link from the well, library. Well, I mean, and, site, and, and they're but, classified for a reason, right? Right. I mean, and, right. And we've, talked, we've talked about this, me in previous podcast episodes, on one hand, um, democracies are founded on the idea of transparency, right? Right. Um, what was the basis of government decisions that affect a whole bunch of people's lives? On the other hand, okay, some of that material has to be kept secret because if it became public, then the nation's enemies would know, one, what we know about what they're doing but two it would expose potentially how we gathered the information human intelligence right we would okay. be putting and, people and in danger that's right uh, our human intelligence assets would be put into danger and what i was it hoping is. for was one like one that was really benign and didn't have a lot of information but turns out they don't bother with those like yeah. whatever is going to the president and vice president is in written in such a way that people will have to be protected so i'm sorry listeners if you were looking forward to me being able to put a link in there but i could not um well it, 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 to that point before we get back to the office of vice president one of the things that i found in doing research about for instance last year we looked at presidential leadership styles right, right. um and um uh, and listeners, some of you may be aware that as presidents conclude their terms, staffers will sometimes write books or do <laughs> press interviews that suggest that some of our presidents have been, shall we say, not all that attentive or not seemingly intelligent enough to, you know, understand the nuances of the daily intelligence reports and briefings. And, and those staffers who go public are generally criticized by those who have worked for even some of our less than highly ranked presidents because that's not the kind of thing that you do if you are a staffer okay, who interacts with the president. Right. I mean, because the basic assumption is, okay, we're here to serve the office of president, no matter who the occupant is. If you are that personal and petty that you want to besmirch the person that you worked with, then perhaps our vetting system, okay, should have rejected you as somebody who would interact with the most powerful person in the United States at minimum. And according to many scholars, the most 
powerful person in the world. Okay? Right. And it's just petty and small. Yeah. That's the other thing. There are so many things that you can criticize people for. Their reading skills of of military briefs should not be one of them. I'm just. And as somebody who's never read a military brief, I don't know if they're well written. I don't know if they're boring, exciting. Okay. Um, technologically, you know, or technically challenging, okay? Are they written in, uh, in, in a Department of Defense language or speak, okay, that would challenge, you know, people with the highest of IQs, you know, Mensa members? I don't know any <laughs> of this, right? Okay. Um, you know, it's kind of sort of like the criticism I hear from my students when they have to read Supreme Court uh, opinions. Man, is this stuff difficult to understand or boring and i'm like yeah okay because they're writing it for a particular audience right okay um right. i don't know and the key there is to slow is to slow down that's yeah. usually the key to reading complicated things is just slow down go over it again yeah but can, getting back can we to talk about the can we talk about a jinx oh you know i love a jinx you i i i, I know you do and I, and I put this in our uh, uh, prep notes just for you. Thank you. Okay. For the Office of Vice President, there is a jinx. It's known as the Van Buren jinx. Martin Van Buren was uh, vice president, um, and he was elect uh, for Andrew Jackson. Okay, so he replaced Calhoun, right? Martin Van Buren became the first of only two vice presidents who have gone on to serve as president, elected. I mean, Gerald Ford would be the third. Wait, is that true? Wait a minute. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Carmondale, Gore. No, Biden. Biden became the fourth, the okay. third that was elected. Oh Only my gosh. Four. Only four. In the entire history of the country. That's crazy. Van Buren, okay. Gerald Ford, but remember, Ford was never elected. Right. So the Van Buren jinx is a former vice president that goes on to win the election to become president. Van Buren was the first. Then Bush 41. That's a huge gap. And then Joe that's Biden. A, like, that's like 100 and some years, right? It's about and, 150. Holy 150 cow. 150 years. Yes. But it's not because of lack of trying, right? Those oh, no, 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 ran. no. Oh, a number of them tried. Okay. What? So what did Van Buren, did, did he curse the office in some way did he like i, I don't know he, he, he one of those served, you know he only I, wave a, as a I wave term. a rubber chicken over this and ruin it for everybody uh, you know scholars are all over the map as to why but i mean let's face it again most vice presidents were not picked okay for their potential to necessarily become president <laughs> i guess wow 
I never, re- I did not realize <laughs> that that was a, yeah, that that, w- that that went on that long. Now, we had some close calls. You actually mentioned one as you were going, you know, running through, you know, the, the Rolodex in your brain. Right, trying to go backwards from. Okay, but you mentioned Al, uh, Al Gore. Right. right. In 2000, if he had won, he would have also been yeah, okay. in that but, rather elite group of people. Okay. But yeah. Interestingly enough, we've had more vice presidents win Nobel Peace Prize than we had them go on to become president. <laughs> okay. One would think that Nobel would be more. Uh, singular but i guess not well, oh, wait, i mean before we, we leave van buren is am i correct that van buren is one of those presidents in the somewhere between 1800 and 1900 that i get them all confused because they're all the same to me except lincoln uh yeah pretty much i mean most okay. president yeah, most presidential scholars uh don't rank martin van buren all that high okay as i as i tell my intro to u.s government class the period between Andrew Jackson and Theodore Roosevelt at the turn of the 20th century is frequently referred to as the office of president in the wilderness. <laughs> which, which president? Uh, Tyler, Taylor, uh, Van Beer, like you just start naming names, hoping that you're getting in the neighborhood of which one (laughs) yeah they are largely indistinguishable it's terrible we shouldn't feel this way but we do okay but again in many ways the 19th century reflects the framers intent about the u.s federal government because Mm. the dominant branch of the federal government in the 19th century was Congress. Oh, right. Which is okay. which is the people's branch. I mean, if you think about it, if you remove Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln, most of the presidents of the 19th century um, were reactive to the Congress. Right. And fall into the mumble mumble name, mumble mumble category. Sure. Okay. In, uh, in, would you would you say that the 21st century was the century of the Supreme Court? Uh, well, hey, you know, political scientists can have <laughs> pitched battles depending on, okay, okay, you know, what, what institution you study, right? Okay. Um, you know, if we brought our, uh, uh, our colleague Bill Newman back, you know, Bill and I would probably go back and forth uh, me claiming the United States Supreme Court, him saying, you know, the office of president, right? But I mean, for most scholars, uh, the modern presidency, starting with Theodore Roosevelt, um, uh, the office of president became the dominant branch of the federal government. Um, um, and you could even make the argument the Supreme Court should never be in that con- uh, conversation. That if mm. the courts if the courts playing that much of a role in American society, then that's there, unfortunate. There are a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of institutions who aren't getting along with one another, which is what we're seeing now. Yeah. So right. wait, 
so let's go back to the Nobel Prize winners. Who are Nobel Prize winners? Uh, let me see. We got uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. Um, he was given the 1906 Peace Prize for negotiating the end of the uh, Russian-Japanese War. Um, Al Gore um, uh, for his efforts to raise awareness about climate change. And uh, Kelvin Coolidge's vice president, Charles Dawes, uh, uh, because he was the one who came up with the reparation payment plan for Germany following World War I. By the way, that was the reparation plan that uh, Germany so disliked. That it, it led to World War II. <laughs> It led to the rise of the Nazis. <laughs> Hitler. Congratulations, Charles Dawes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that probably didn't work out the way anybody thought it was going to. <laughs> okay, so we're three for three. Three have gone on to be president and three have won Nobel Prizes. Yeah, okay. there you go. Yep. So um, I want to I wanna kind of... The, the vice presidents, there have been some really, like, like really notable um, how do I put this? Impactful vice presidents. Even though you and I have spent the last one and a half episodes, one and three quarters episodes, talking about how pretty much useless the vice president's office is it hasn't always been there have been a few shining stars right there have been a, sh a few people who yeah both positive and negative right i mean we mentioned andrew johnson just a few moments ago andrew, andrew johnson became president after lincoln was assassinated but andrew johnson was in so many conflicts with the united states congress post-Civil War, okay, that he ended up being impeached, okay? He ended up be being impeached, right? We've had other vice, president, vice presidential candidates who were the first. So many Americans probably have never heard of James W. Ford. He was the first African-American to campaign for vice president and receive popular votes. Um, and he was the Communist Party VP nominee three times, 32, 1932, 1936, and 1940, okay? Um, oh, before the Red Scare. Yes, yep, before the when Red Scare. When you could run as a communist and not be brought before the House of Un-American Un Un Activities. Activities, like this yes. that, yeah. okay. Yeah. I didn't realize um, that we'd already had a okay, a, a, an African American run for, for vice, vice president. president. That's yeah. cool. And who actually received popular votes. So when Joe Biden nominated Kamala Harris, okay, um, and you know the press was saying she was our first person of color, okay, nominated for vice president. I was, you know the the. The, the poli sci professor in you was, was like, like no, 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 right? Okay, okay. Um, although Richard she's Nixon, the first 
black female. Female, yes, yeah. Say we've talked about Richard Nixon a number of times, but Nixon's vice presidency, okay, was noteworthy for a number of reasons. Um, um, in part, it was probably the first um, unpleasant vice president president relationship that the media reported on. Eisenhower's disdain for Nixon was so acute that Ike was quite willing to entertain questions about how little he thought of Richard Nixon while they were in office, while they were in office, okay? Oh, I see. So like before that, the press might've known that there was a problem with like FDR and his many his vice many presidents. vice presidents, yes. but they didn't report talk about it. They didn't, yeah, okay. Yeah. Kind of okay. like they didn't report on Kennedy's extramarital relationships, relationships. or FDR's extramarital relationships. That's right. They yeah. didn't report on a lot of stuff, but in this particular instance, I guess it was just what, so openly known that yes, that they, Nixon, they thought, well, it's fine, we can report it because... And Nixon was so obviously trying to position himself to be the next president. Ah. And the former, you know, military officer in Eisenhower really disliked that. Because, yeah. you know, in the military, okay, um, that's not the way you go about trying to get your boss's job. Yeah, you don't undermine your boss. Yes. Which wasn't Nixon like that was one of his things was that he was sort of um, what they call him tricky, tricky, tricky dick. dick. Yes. Because yes. he did a lot of sort of uh, oh, gamey he was, like he was he was noted for his negative campaign activities, but also sort of the um, uh, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of stuff oh. that goes on he played yeah, a lot of and, those kinds of games too didn't he yeah um many americans may not remember another very prominent vice presidential candidate um thomas eagleton uh thomas eagleton was democratic presidential nominee george mcgovern's pick for vp in the 1972 presidential election um, and, um, the press found out that Eagleton, when he was a much younger person, uh, had been hospitalized for depression and had received, um, electroshock therapy. Which um, was what they did for depression back in the day. That's right. And today, again, by today's standards, you know, somebody having a history of depression uh, would not necessarily be viewed, I would argue, as a negative to run for elected office, right? I mean, according you know, to the statistics, okay, there is a very significant percentage of the American population that have been diagnosed at various times in their life um, as suffering from depression, okay? But back then it was unusual. 
And what was even more unusual was Eagleton did not deny it. He just came out and said. Yeah, so? So, and this was the treatment my doctors recommended. I went through it. I've been fine since. Unfortunately, the press kept on asking the presidential nominee, George McGovern, about it over and over and over again. Oh, so it was getting in the way of the message. It was getting in the way of the political messages. Okay. And and McGovern, um, I think it was like 17 or 18 days later, um, after initially saying he you know, supported Ingleton, what was the, the, uh, the quote? Uh, a thousand percent, okay? Um, but like 17 or 18 days later, McGovern then forced Eagleton um, to withdraw as his vice presidential candidate. Yeah. So, and then McGovern went on to lose enormously. In one of the one of the biggest landslides, I think he lost forty nine out of fifty states. Which, isn't there some argument that people didn't like that he turned on his? Yeah, uh, that he Democrat, turned on Eagleton. That they felt yeah, like a number. He, yeah, if you really back big, him a thousand percent, then you got to keep going all the way. Uh, a number of post election uh, uh, polls um, identified. Uh, uh, a percentage of Democratic voters um, who didn't vote at all. They didn't vote for Nixon. They just didn't vote because of what McGovern did. Ah, so it hurt him in the long run. He should yeah, have stayed with. He yeah. should have stayed with Eagleton. Now, in hindsight, McGovern probably had next to no chance of beating Nixon in '72. Right. Well, Nixon's machine oh, yeah. by that point was yeah. But it still would have been a it still would have been the right thing to do. If you really believe that the person is is qualified is competent to, to serve, then is, is 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 qualified to serve, okay, and would be would do a good job as your replacement if anything, you know, untoward happened to you. Then you you stick with them. I yeah. mean, that lack that 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 kind of disloyalty um, doesn't resonate typically with voters. Right. Okay. It's one of the things that hurt Al Gore is that he was not yeah. that he was because not loyal. There were to a Clinton. number of Democratic voters who were like, "Why are you running away from a successful two-term president's record?" Right. That you claim to have been a part of. Yes, that you had a substantial part of, right? Uh, but you know, the, the Gore campaign had done a bunch of polling um that indicated that independent voters um had issues with Bill Clinton's uh relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Um, his relation, uh, his extramarital, you know, affairs, and Al Gore was just, you know, and, and and at that time, Al Gore had the, well, he was still married. He was married to his wife's name was Tipper Gore. Right. Okay, 
and they had the kind of you know classic hollywood you know you know marriage right i think they had like two kids you know she was this attractive intelligent you know spouse and al gore wanted to portray a different kind of image right the problem was there were a whole bunch of voters in the united states particularly independent voters who were able to disassociate bill clinton the CAD with Bill Clinton, the effective president. Right. And Al Gore didn't understand that. And didn't trust them. When we stop trusting voters, voters stop trusting us. This is a cautionary tale, right? And I've always thought that about politicians, okay? Why refuse to acknowledge bad news, right? Right. I could be wrong, but for instance, right now, as we're recording this podcast episode, uh, the United States government just announced that inflation is at the highest rate in 40 years. And one of the things that I would say to the Biden administration is don't deny that inflation is bad. Right. Don't say it's tran- transition, what, transitionary or transitory. Come out and say it's bad. We know it's bad. And we're going to try to figure out how to address it. Right. We're working on it. But we acknowledge it as a problem. Because because right now, I think a lot of of American voters, a lot of people that, you know, I interact with who may be buying supporters, who may not be. But the bottom line is they know every month they have less money because the things that they have to buy cost more. Right. They're not dumb. Okay. And they may not necessarily know all of the economic equations that some Harvard law professor in economics, okay, has written papers about, but they know that at the end of the month, they have less money in their checking account right? They have less money in their bank account. Don't run away from it, okay? Trust us, okay? Come out and say to us, okay? We know inflation is bad. We thought it was only going to be for three or four months. It's lasted longer. But we're going to, you know, we're going to put the collective power of the federal government behind addressing this. I, I, I don't understand people who who don't trust the public, right? Um, and yes, I, I make cracks about, you know, <laughs> the collective intelligence of some of our, you know, fellow citizens, okay? You know, that's part of me being sarcastic. That's me being cynical. But at the end of the day, if you don't trust the voters, if you don't trust the public, then you don't give them any reason to trust you. Sorry for the rant. I I apologize. I do want to mention one more noteworthy vice presidential candidate. Okay. Okay. And this was, I think, important for both you and me and our lives because it occurred um, in 1984. And that was Geraldine Ferraro, okay, who Walter Mondale who was the Democratic Party nominee for president, 
uh, Walter Mondale picked our first female vice presidential candidate from one of the two major political parties. Okay. Um, and that was, that was noteworthy, right? Uh, we've had other women VP candidates on third party tickets, but I, 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 I still remember to this day coming home from school and having my sisters wanting to talk about how there was a woman, okay, who was running for VP and she would be like, you know, one step away from becoming president. I remember my sisters talking about it. It was huge, okay, well, in my family. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm not trying to be cynical about the runs of people who went for president. Shirley Chisholm comes to mind. Yeah. But other women who have attempted to run, but they, they were not going to get the nominations from the parties, not back then. But she actually got the nomination from the party. She got the go-ahead. Like that was groundbreaking, in the sense of uh, from a major party. I see what you're saying about the about communist party and and uh, libertarian and that sort of thing, where other women had tried, but um, but she was, and she paved the way for Sarah Palin, who came closer than Geraldine Ferraro did. Right? Yes. Yeah. The election was much closer, and Sarah Palin, in 2008, Palin, yeah, right, as a Republican candidate, ran with John McCain. She was chosen to be John McCain's vice yeah. presidential uh, running mate, which is very exciting. It, 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 they paved the way for Kamala Harris, right? Yes. That, 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 that's how, when we talk about change with the government, and we talk about incremental change. That's what happened. That's how you get incremental change. Geraldine Ferraro made a serious run for it, did really well in the debates. Like she was taken seriously as a candidate. So she opened the door for Sarah Palin, who came through and did and 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 did a pretty strong run. Right. She was beloved by a huge amount of the Republican Party. It, it did. You know, Geraldine Ferraro and Sarah Palin make mistakes on the campaign trail. Of yes. course. Okay. But, you know, you and I have talked about this before, Nia. Sarah Palin motivated a part of the Republican Party base that John McCain could not. Right. John McCain could not. Okay. Um, and likewise, um, you know, you can go ahead and call it strategic. You can go ahead and say it was political. But Joe Biden needed Kamala Harris in 2020 right? To motivate a part of the Democratic Party base, okay, that once again was so close to concluding, we're picking another, per, you know, old white male from the 1980s and 90s? Really? Right. Okay. Um, and again, that's, that's one of the purposes of the vice, who you pick as vice presidential running mate, for presidential campaigns okay can we i want to i want to talk briefly about <laughs> the fact that most of the vice presidential folk have been pretty well educated they've been pretty in, you know they're relatively intelligent people right these are these are not just your average idiot 
walking around, right? They're, they're, they're a relatively elite group of people. And yet they say things and do things that occasionally make them, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Well, the person yeah. who's coming to mind is Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle on a regular basis said stuff. And in part, it was because he was a terrible public speaker, right? He just, he would say things trying to say something else and the press would pounce on him in part because he looked like, I think, he looked like Robert Redford in The Candidate, right? He yeah. looked like a guy who chewed bubble gum and, and you know, was kind of dippy or whatever. Well, I mean, in, even in, though in Dan Quayle was, wasn't he a lawyer? Like he was. He was a former lawyer. He was a former member of the House of Representatives. And had he, done well in those jobs. He done well in those jobs. In fact, he worked with Senator Ted Kennedy, a Democrat, in passing a, a, a labor reform law in the 1980s, okay, that I remember studying in undergraduate political science classes at the University of Pittsburgh, right? Right. So you but, get the NAACP and they're... And they're catchphrase used to be a mind is a terrible thing to waste that's right right and it was basically saying young black people should go to college right it's really important that we that we bring those folks up through the system so that they can be administrators and lawyers and doctors and everything else in a way that they had not been represented in college for many for 200 years before that and he was trying to get behind that. <laughs> but instead when he said, said <laughs> what a waste it is to lose one's mind. Or to not have a mind is being very wasteful. How true that is. He so <laughs> badly mangled it, right? <laughs> okay. And that's what he's known for. What a waste it is to lose one's mind. Like, okay. <laughs> He did, he did a campaign event at a school where they were doing a spelling competition, and I think he misspelled what potato. Potatoey. Yes, right. He, he okay. put an end on the uh, an e on the end he of on potato. the end of the word, right? Okay. <laughs> Which again, as somebody who reads college student papers all the time, right? <laughs> and I see some spellings to where I'm like wonder what word that is (laughs) Uh, yeah right and you know i'm pretty sure they didn't run spell check and by the way for our younger listeners there wasn't spell check in the 1980s early 1990s right but nevertheless he he would he would say that stuff it was because he was young and he was boyish looking i mean bush 41's campaign made it very clear that one of the reasons why they picked dan quayle was that he was young, that he would motivate younger voters to look at the Republican Party, right? But he so he had such difficulty with the English language, okay, in terms well, of public speaking. And then okay? the the next run after him, Al Gore, was the stiffest human being to ever run. Yeah. For an office when he was vice, when he was running in the vice presidential um, uh, position, he was just, he's a policy wonk 
and he was he did not come across as warm and fuzzy bill clinton came across as you know when bill clinton would say i feel your pain people believed it like they believed that he was that he had had the human experience and al gore just couldn't now it didn't in the end it didn't cost him the vice but he was able to be vice president but i remember going to a to a rally of theirs and him trying to joke about the secret service calling him plank as his secret service name because they all have secret service names um uh, all the candidates and all the white house people are given secret service names and he tried to tell a joke about him you know he was so stiff that they called him plank no one in the room laughed because of yeah. the way he delivered it people weren't sure if he was joking or not <laughs> Like, oh, well, I mean, no. it, when, when Al Gore ran for president in 2000, I remember after one of his debates uh, against Bush 43, there was a review of the debate. Um, and, and this was a reporter who was generally in favor of Democrats, but said, Al Gore reminds me of the smartest kid in the room. He is so earnest and is always raising his hand, okay? <laughs> that after a while, every, every other student in the classroom just wants him to stop talking. Right, just shut up. Okay? Right. Because we all know you're the smartest kid, okay? Could you give the rest of us a chance? Right. Or stop breaking the curve one way or yeah, another. Right. Like, just, yeah, right. Okay. Dude. Okay. Let it go. But, but I, but, I do but, but wanna... some of the by the way, some of the other quotes about the vice president position, either by by vice presidents or by people who are being considered for vice president, are just hilarious. Um again, I'm gonna go back to Thomas Marshall, who was the VP for Wilson. Quote, once there were two brothers, one ran away to the sea, the other, the other was elected vice president, and nothing was ever heard from either of them again. <laughs> I like the one you have in here from Daniel Webster. I do not propose to be buried until I am dead. That's when he turned, when he turned down uh, being vice, vice president, president in 1839. I do not propose yeah. to be buried until I am dead. Like, dang. Nelson Rockefeller, who was the VP for Ford, what do you do as vice president? Quote, I go to funerals, I go to earthquakes. <laughs> John McCain has, has one in there that's really good too. I spent several years in a North Vietnamese prison camp in the dark, fed with scraps. Do you think I want to do that all over again as vice president of the United States? Like, wow. <clears throat> and by the way, that's a quote that McCain uttered after McCain lost the 2000 Republican Party nomination for president to the eventual winner, Bush 43. Ah. And McCain was asked by reporters, would you consider being <laughs> Bush's VP candidate? And that's when McCain, okay, wow. without pause. <laughs> I mean, he didn't even think about it. He just went ahead and said, you know, what you just, and, and, and in the news, in, in the reporters were just like, 
damn right because what he doesn't mention here with the in the dark fed with scraps and tortured like oh he was yeah yeah he was tortured at the hanoi hilton to the point where he couldn't lift his arms over his head and he would rather like he doesn't want to do that all over again as being vice president but i think the best one and i would like if you would read is the one from austin grossman okay yeah what is the vice presidency The Constitution dictates only two duties, casting the deciding vote if the Senate is deadlocked and replacing the president if he dies or is impeached. Apart from waiting for those two things to happen, you made the rest up and were duly forgotten by history. The exception being Aaron Burr, who shot someone decisively lowering the bar for the rest of us. Right. As long as you don't shoot someone, you have a successful vice presidency. I love that. And on that, you know, on on that humorous note, Nia, I don't think we can end it better than that. (laughs) I think we can conclude our two part discussion. Okay, of the office of the vice president of the United States. (laughs) Thanks, Augie. Thank you, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.